Well, welcome back to Christian Life Academy, and this is our week where we focus on historical theology or church history, and so this morning we are looking at the third century. Now, uh, we've made an effort uh, thus far to try and cover one century each morning, but this morning I think we're only going to get about halfway through the third century, and then next time uh, we'll look at the concluding half just because there's a lot happening uh, during this time period. But let's begin with a couple of verses out of 2 Timothy, Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. Uh, this is Paul's final letter to his young protege, Timothy, who is in Ephesus uh, at the church there. And Paul is giving him instructions on how to uh, continue to order that church uh, and to establish it and to see that it would continue even after Timothy leaves uh, to go be with Paul. And so in Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul is instructing Timothy uh, that there are, is a system of doctrine, a pattern of sound words, as he says uh, in chapter 1, that, that Timothy has learned from Paul in the presence of other witnesses who also learned it, and now Timothy is to pass on that doctrine, that teaching to other men who would then be able to pass it on to others. And so this is how uh, the church would be established and continue from one generation to the next, is that this pattern of sound words would be faithfully taught to faithful men who would teach others. And so as we look at the third century history of the church, uh, this question is going to arise is exactly what is that pattern of sound words and how is it to be preserved from one generation to the next. There are several uh, factors involved in the third century that sort of forced the church to, to answer this question uh, and a couple of related questions uh, regarding this. Uh, the factors that are really involved are, uh, first of all, what's happening in the Roman Empire in the third century. Uh, which, of course, is the 200s, right? We're looking at 200 A.D. to 300 A.D. But, again, these are not uh, clean-cut timelines, right? When we say the 3rd century, we might be bleeding over a little bit back into the 2nd century. Uh, we're not, these things didn't happen exactly on the calendar. Uh, but in the 3rd century, uh, as the church is coming through the persecution that happened in the second century, uh, that persecution begins to um, ease off a little bit at the end of the second century, largely due to political turmoil that's happening in the Roman Empire at the time. Uh, most of the rulers of the various provinces of Rome were too busy dealing with the political turmoil, the turnover amongst the emperors, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, they didn't have the time to devote to persecuting the church the way they had previously. Uh, but there is some persecution that's still happening, some difficulty that's arising for the church. Uh, an emperor takes the throne, uh, and in 202, uh, and I'll see if I can pronounce his name, Emperor Septimus Severus. And Severus is an interesting name because he, he kind of makes a severe pronouncement in 202 A.D. And he forbids conversion to Christianity. Uh, remember that prior to this, a large part of the reason the church was being persecuted was because the Roman Empire saw Christians as atheists. 
They weren't worshiping the pantheon of the Roman gods, and this was uh, not only to be atheist, but it was to be um, not a good citizen. Uh, they were unpatriotic. By not worshiping the Roman gods and the Roman pantheon, uh, the Romans felt like the Christians were um, causing problems in the Roman Empire because the gods were not being appeased. And so uh, Emperor Severus says, you can't convert to Christianity. It's illegal now uh, to leave the Roman faith and convert to Christianity. And so this led to uh, some persecution at the beginning of the third century, but not as severe as what had been going on at the end of the second century. The other thing is that, that happens is that the church had grown so much by this point that they began to outgrow uh, the locations where they had been meeting. They began to outgrow the homes that they had been gathered in. And so uh, some of the congregations, particularly in the larger cities, had begun to build church buildings. Uh, and the Roman Empire was already full of temples to their various gods. And now the Christians are building their own buildings, but they're not calling them temples. Uh, they're churches, they're gathering places, the, the ecclesia. So uh, the church begins to gather in these dedicated buildings. Uh, but as the church is is attempting to continue to gather, continue to uh, practice their faith, and continue to proselytize, even though it's now illegal for Roman citizens to convert. The church is also faced with uh, the growing influence of Greek philosophy and Gnosticism uh, throughout the culture. And if you'll remember, Gnosticism had arisen in the second century. It had challenged key beliefs of the Christian faith. Um, it was largely influenced by the Greek philosophy of Plato, although Plato himself wasn't necessarily a Gnostic. Uh, but Gnosticism questioned some key tenets of Christianity, particularly Gnosticism said that the physical world itself, by virtue of being material, was inherently evil and that the spiritual world was inherently good. And so they had this dualism. And so when the Christians would look at the scripture and say, well, God created the earth and declared it to be very good, the Gnostics would have a problem with that. Uh, they, they taught that as Gnostic influence began to come into the church and various church leaders embraced some of the tenets of Gnosticism, uh, they began to teach that, well, Christ couldn't have literally had a physical body because the physical is evil. And if he's God and if he's altogether good, then he couldn't have had a physical body. So uh, he must have only appeared to have a physical body. Uh, of course, this uh, is antithetical to the Christian faith. If Christ didn't have a physical body, then he didn't actually offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross. Uh, so it creates all sorts of problems for the Christian faith. And so the church has to, to begin to answer these things. Not only that, but as we look at the teaching of the church, consider, for instance, this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This would be impossible from a Gnostic perspective. You can't glorify God in your body because the body is evil. Only the spirit is good. So uh, there's a lot of conflict between Gnostic thought and the teaching of the scriptures. Or consider this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, if you're doing these physical things, you can't do them to the glory of God because the physical is evil according to Gnosticism. So for Christians, salvation is not 
freedom or deliverance from the physical realm. It's the redemption of our bodies. It's the redemption of the physical world from the effects of sin, right? It's the, the perfection of God's creation, the restoration of it back to uh, a unity between the physical and the spiritual so that we are restored to God in a holistic way. Um, and so there's a, a conflict here for Christian belief and the belief that is pervading the Roman culture because of the teaching of Gnosticism. And so if you'll remember in the second century, one particular leader within the church, a guy by the name of Marcion, who had been heavily influenced by Gnosticism, uh, he began to teach some things that were troubling. Uh, If Gnosticism is right and the physical world is bad and Christ didn't have a physical body, uh, Marcion looked at this and went, well, we can't have all of this because these things can't be true. And so he rejected the Old Testament uh, in whole. He, he, He taught that the God of the Old Testament couldn't be the loving heavenly father of the New Testament. The, the, the loving heavenly father, the spiritual being, the, the father of Christ, wouldn't have created a physical world that's inherently evil. Uh, and so that must have been some lower deity that created the physical world, uh, different deity than the heavenly father taught in the New Testament. Uh, he, he also thought, well, God, being a spiritual being who is pure and holy because he is spirit, God would not dare to resurrect or redeem physical bodies because they're evil, because they're physical. Uh, So he had to do away with a large portion of the New Testament as well. So he rejected uh, most of the New Testament as well. He rejected uh, most of the Gospels. He kept a small portion of the Gospel of Luke, and he kept a few of Paul's letters. And all, he kept 11 uh, books of the Scriptures from the New Testament and rejected all the rest. He also taught um, what what we know as docetism, that Christ didn't have a physical body, only appeared to have one. Uh, Interestingly, they also think about this. If if you're Gnostic and the flesh is evil, the physical world is evil, the spiritual is good, uh, then they begin to uh, drift into asceticism, right? We can't enjoy anything that's physical. So they, they forbid sexual relations totally, even amongst married couples. Uh, They celebrated the Lord's Supper with water and bland crackers so that they wouldn't enjoy the taste of it, right? We can't drink wine or grape juice or something that we might enjoy. We have to just drink something that we're not going to get any pleasure out of because it's physical and that's evil. Uh, So Marcion is creating a, a major problem in the church because he's teaching these ideas in the church. He's wealthy, uh, he's kind of bought his way into a position of power in the church in Rome. And so certain church leaders in the third century really step up and begin to combat uh, this Greek philosophy that has invaded the church. One of these men is Clement of Alexandria. Uh, Clement is the head of the Christian school in Alexandria, Egypt, and this is the school that is there in order to take people who have converted to Christianity and to teach them and train them in the doctrines of the faith prior to their baptism. So that's what the school is for. Uh, and so uh, he's the head of that school, and he, he set out to show that Christianity uh, was intellectually viable, right? That the Greek culture had embraced this philosophy and the teachings of Plato and other philosophers. And so Clement wanted to show that the Christian faith uh, was a reasonable faith, 
one that, that you could think through, that it made sense logically. Uh, and so he began uh, to uh, set about on this campaign to prove this. Uh, he began to quote pagan writers in his sermons and in his writings. He argued that Christianity was uh, the culmination of the truth that the Greek philosophers were seeking. They hadn't quite found it. They were close to it in many ways, but Christianity was the truth that they were actually seeking through their philosophical uh, reasoning. He argued against the Gnostics very strongly, uh, but he began to incorporate some of their ideas and teachings. He, he particularly the idea of secret knowledge, which is what the, where the word Gnostic comes from. And so Clement begins to teach that as we read the scriptures, if we think carefully about carefully enough about them, if we uh, begin to interpret them correctly, we'll find hidden meaning, secret uh, meaning within the scriptures. And so uh, he begins to teach this idea of the allegorical interpretation of scripture. Not entirely wrong, Paul does this in Galatians, right? He, he interprets uh, Sarah and Hagar in an allegory, but Clement begins to kind of take it to a new level. Now he has a student there in Alexandria, who is his star student uh, and will eventually become his successor in the school there in Alexandria, uh, Erysian. Uh, he's a brilliant thinker. Uh, this man is very, very intellectual. He is considered the most prolific writer in history. We don't have a lot of his original writings remaining, but by all accounts, he wrote a lot of stuff, more than any other author that we know of. And he really took Clement's idea of this allegorical interpretation of Scripture and began to develop it uh, into a whole system. Now, it wasn't entirely wrong, his system. In fact, we would still use parts of it. He, he argued that we should read the text of Scripture and look for the plain meaning on the surface of it. What does it say and what does it mean? Then he argued that we should look for uh, a moral parable in what it says. So if we're reading something in the Old Testament, what, what morality can we learn from that? What instruction can we get for that, from that for ourselves? But then he taught we should look for this mystical symbolism, this allegorical interpretation. Again, he wasn't entirely wrong. He's one of the first writers that we know of who interpreted the Song of Songs as being an allegory about Christ and the church, which we would agree with. So his interpretation of Scripture is not entirely wrong, but he takes it to some unprecedented levels and ends up with some strange and even heretical views. Uh, he began to believe that uh, the resurrection of our bodies, the promise of the resurrection, wasn't actually simply a, a restoration and perfection and glorification of our bodies, but rather it was a reincarnation of the whole world. Those who had not attained to the righteousness required to live in God's presence would be uh, reincarnated. The whole world would be reincarnated and get a do-over. And then that time, more of them would make it in, and then it would reincarnate again. And eventually, everyone would be redeemed, even Satan. Uh, so you can see the problems with this. He's drifting into heresy. He's uh, disregarding the plain teaching of Scripture, even though he argued that we should read it and look for its plain meaning. Uh, but he also got some things very right. Uh, his teachings on the Trinity are brilliant. He's one of the first uh, people to uh, come up with the phrase uh, and the teaching concerning the eternal 
that Christ is the eternally begotten Son of God. He argued that God was timeless, and therefore the Son must have been eternally begotten and not begotten in time. And he was absolutely correct about that and, and held to a view that is now considered the orthodox uh, Nicene view of Christianity regarding Christ. Uh, but he had some bad views as well. He was eventually declared to be a heretic in the 6th century. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, partly, uh, some of the things I read suggested that he might not have been declared to be a heretic, uh, but during some of the persecution that happened, he was wounded and then went home and died at home. And had he died in the arena and been considered a martyr, he might never have been declared a heretic. He might have been celebrated as a martyr, but because he went home and died at home, he was never considered a martyr. And so by the 6th century, uh, the church declared him to be a heretic because of his views on basically universal salvation. Uh, interestingly enough, Roman Catholicism has largely adopted his view uh, with their teaching of purgatory and the idea that eventually everyone uh, will be purified and pay off their, their sins and be accepted. And if you really dig into the teachings of Roman Catholicism, they hold that view not just for Roman Catholics and for Protestant Christians, but even for Muslims and others as well that will eventually uh, pay off and work off their sins in purgatory and be restored. So they really adopted much of Erijian's view concerning universal salvation. But then what happens in the mid-third uh, century is that Emperor Severus is succeeded to the throne by uh, a relative of his, Emperor Alexander Severus, uh, and he legalizes Christianity uh, in about 242. Uh, and so Christianity now is no longer suffering the persecution that it had been up to this point. But the problem that the church has encountered with um, the teachings of Marcion and the Gnostics and then uh, with the rise of Clement and Erijan as these leaders who are um, arguing back against the Gnostics, the church is faced with answering this question of what is the faith once for all delivered to the saints that we are to pass down from one generation to the next? What are those beliefs and how are we to protect them? And so the church's response to that uh, in the third century is instructive, I think, for us today. First of all, uh, they, they had a sort of a three-pronged response. They had to uh, answer Marcion as far as what goes in here, which books do we consider to actually be the, the Christian scriptures? And then secondly, they had to answer, well, what, what is uh, foundational to the Christian faith? At what point do we have to declare you a heretic if you don't believe these things? And then thirdly, how do we safeguard these things from one generation to the next? So their response to Marcion as far as which writings should be included in the scripture uh, began to be codified then in the third century. Uh, most all of the church agreed that Christ revealed the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. The, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures is the Heavenly Father that Christ is revealing. And so the church, by and large, accepted the Old Testament writings, uh, the Jewish Scriptures, as being Christian Scripture. As far as the New Testament goes, uh, they began to uh, sort of informally develop uh, some tests. This wasn't a, a formal thing that a council did. It just kind of happened in the church. But there were th sort of three tests that churches used 
uh, as they were evaluating different letters, gospel writings, and things of that nature to determine, is this scripture or not? The tests were these. Is it connected to an apostolic eyewitness? Can we say this was written by an apostle or by a close associate of one of the apostles? Is this an apostolic eyewitness to Christ? Secondly, um, as you consider, say, one of Paul's letters, they would ask the question, does this in any way contradict other eyewitness accounts that we have already confirmed to be inspired scripture? Because if it does, if it contradicts what we consider to be scripture, then it can't be scripture because scripture doesn't contradict itself. And then thirdly, um, they sort of looked around and went, are, what are the other churches doing throughout the world? Are, is this book, is this letter accepted generally in most of the churches? If it is, then we'll accept it. If it isn't, then we need to reevaluate. So those were sort of the three uh, tests that they were using uh, as they looked at the scripture. And one reason it was important for them to look and see what, what is generally being accepted throughout the known world and the churches is because they began to be aware with the rise of Marcion in Rome, with the rise of Clement and Horizon in Alexandria, many of the churches began to go, you know, just because the church is in Rome, the capital of the empire, doesn't mean they get to decide things for the rest of us. Just because Alexandria is an important city doesn't mean they get to decide things for the rest of us. And so the church generally was concerned that these big, large cities with charismatic, dynamic leaders uh, shouldn't be able to unilaterally decide what is or isn't scripture or what is or isn't orthodox Christian teaching. And so, you know, this took about two centuries uh, for it to be really settled. By the end of the third century, the canon of the New Testament was largely settled. There were a few questions concerning possibly the book of Hebrews or the book of James, First uh, and Second Peter, Second and Third John, but most of the New Testament had been pretty settled by the end of the third century. But if we think about our own day and age in the Christian church here in America, is this a question we still have to be concerned about? Well, I think it is. We've got Andy Stanley basically embracing Marcionism. Uh, wanting to unhitch the Christian faith from the Old Testament. Or we've got, um, you know, in recent years, this book Jesus Calling has been extremely popular, uh, where the author is claiming to have heard from God and, and written down the words that God gave her. Or, or we have modern apostles and prophets, so-called, uh, claiming to have a fresh word from God and, and fresh revelation from God. Uh, and so we have to ask the same questions that the church in the third century did. Well, does the Spirit work through the Word, uh, and, and in what way? And so is this what we're going to rely on, the Spirit working through the inspired Scriptures, or are we going to look elsewhere uh, for the revelation from God? Secondly, the church had to answer the question of, well, what does this teach? What is this pattern of sound words that we are to hand down to the next generation that we are to preserve? And so this is really the church's response to Clement and, and Erijan. Um, what is it that we believe? What is it that we teach? And so we've already spoken about this, but uh, they began to use what was at the time called the rule of faith. Uh, and this was in some ways or even a response to Marcion uh, 
this was a standard of what do Christians believe, and someone must believe and be willing to publicly confess their belief in these things before we'll be willing to baptize them. We now call this rule of faith the Apostles' Creed. This was 12 basic statements about Christian belief. Uh, and so if you believed these things, you're not a heretic. If you don't believe these things, you're outside the church. You're not a Christian. And, and so the church had to answer that question, and this was what they came up with and settled on, was the rule of faith, or what we call the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and so we still have to answer this question today. And there's an interesting article um, by Albert Moeller uh, called Theological Triage that kind of addresses uh, this question and how we ought to deal with it. And I liked some of the things that he had to say. Triage, of course, happens in an ER at the hospital, right? Patients are coming in and the nurses and the doctors have to make some decisions about these patients. What is the priority of treatment? Who do we have to treat first? Uh, and who can we leave here for a little while uh, and, and they won't die while we're treating someone else? Uh, and so what is the urgency of the need? And then what is the nature of the response? What kind of treatment do they need? Well, Moeller is arguing that the church today needs to do some theological triage, that we need to sort out into categories or tiers of priority uh, our faith the doctrines of the Christian faith and know what is the appropriate response. And so he offers uh, this system of three tiers uh, of doctrine. The first one, tier one, is, as he says, essential for salvation. In other words, if you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. So this is where the Apostles' Creed would come in, right? So we need to know this. We need to know so that when our neighbor down the street is a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, are they a Christian or not? We need to be able to answer that question so that we know how to appropriately respond to them. Do we need to proclaim the gospel to them and call them to repentance? The second tier, though, he says, is things that are important for fellowship in the church. How much agreement do we need in order to live together as a body of believers. We're Baptists. We love some of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. We think they're here. They've got this right. They're Christians. They're with us in the faith. We have some disagreements with them on some doctrines that would preclude certain types of fellowship, right? Someone gets saved in the church. Now what do we do? What mode of baptism do we use? Do we baptize their children as well? And so for us to have a unity and fellowship in the church, we have to understand and decide these things and sort of know where those boundaries are. And then the third tier are things that are, as he says, not to be divided over. Can I spell that wrong? Don't divide over these things. We can be in the same church together uh, and not separate over these issues. So what are these issues? I mean, I, I think he's right. If we go down here and we said, wait a minute, there is no third tier. We have to agree on everything, right? If we did that, how many of us are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. We'd have thirteen churches here if we required 100% agreement on everything, right? We're not going to agree 100%. So we, we're not going to go there. We're not going to say, no, no, 
we have to agree on everything across the border. We can't be in fellowship together as a church. So I think these are helpful categories. You know, the problems are is that liberal Christianity in the last hundred years or so uh, has come to the conclusion that everything is in the third tier. We shouldn't divide over anything. We just love each other. Nothing is so important that we should divide over it. The response to that from fundamentalism in many cases has been everything is over here. If we don't agree with it, we're dividing, right? Everything is in tier one. We have to agree on everything. But that's simply not the case. So what, what things would we put here in tier one? Obviously the Apostles' Creed, so that kind of gives us a clue, right? But let's name some of those things that would go in tier one. You have to believe, if you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. The Trinity. What is it? You gonna put that in tier one? That, that's somewhere in here, isn't it? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's say that it is important. Some people don't necessarily understand it. But, yeah. What else will we put there? Okay, so the incarnation. Okay. Resurrection, yeah. Forgive me if I misspell something. I'm not a great speller. Right. Yeah, I mean, the virgin birth, that stuff is all included here, right? Um, yeah, salvation by faith in Christ and not faith in yourself or something like that. Anything else that we would put here off the top of our head? That's a pretty good list. What would we put over here in, in tier two? Obviously, I'd put baptism over here, right? Now, in some ways, this one goes over here too, right? If you believe in baptismal regeneration, that, that becomes a first tier issue. But if it's simply a debate over the mode of baptism, then we could put that in tier two. If you think that baptism saves you, it becomes a tier one issue, but... What else would we put in tier two? That we need, we need, we need to have it in order to have fellowship as a church. Communion. What is it? Communion. Communion. The Lord's Supper. That's actually a big one. There was a lot of separation during the period of the Reformation over the issue of the Lord's Supper, and disagreements over the nature of it. Actually, more ink spilled on that debate amongst Protestants than any other subject during the period of the Reformation. Calvin, Zwingli, all of them disagreeing. Luther on the nature of the Lord's Supper. They all thought each other were believers, but they couldn't hold fellowship together in the churches because of that subject. Um, you know, I don't know what else we might put there. Um, how about this one? Um, if I could spell this right. Ecclesiology. How do we organize authority in the church? Do we have elders and deacons or just a pastor and deacons? Do we, is the church congregational, independent, or are we part of a larger presbytery with authority over the local church? 
That's, we can't really have fellowship as a church if we disagree over those subjects, right? So there are things there that are important. We wouldn't say that somebody that disagrees with us, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who disagree on the issue of ecclesiology, we wouldn't say they're not Christians because of that, but it would be really hard for us to work together in the same church having the disagreement over what the authority structure is or whether there's some organization outside the local church that has authority. What would we put over here in the third tier? What's that? In the third tier? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I would put that over here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what about issues that we could agree to disagree on within the church? Eschatology, okay. What else? I mean, certain level of disagreement, you know. What else could we, could we disagree on and still get along? Okay. I mean, that can bleed over a little bit into fellowship, but we can, to some extent, agree to disagree on our views about that. Um, what else might we put there? What is it? Liturgy, Liturgy yeah. Good one. Yeah, we could disagree on the order of service and various elements of our service, right? So you can see that these categories are kind of helpful. We can look over here and go, anybody over here on this side of this line is a Christian. They're a brother and sister. Anybody in here, we could comfortably do church together as a family. Over here, this stuff, we can, we can agree to disagree with people and, and it's not a big problem for us. So that's what the church in the third century was having to decide. What are these issues? What, at what point can we say somebody is a heretic, that they're no longer a Christian? Uh, at what point can we admit them into fellowship in this particular church? And so the Apostles' Creed was largely what they used for that. Um, next month, when we look at the second half of the third century, we're going to see um, a big controversy that arose because of some persecution and what happened after the persecution ended and people wanted to come back into the church who had uh, left the church during the period of persecution and there was a disagreement over can we have fellowship with these people or not. So uh, this continues into the second half of the third century. The other question that the church is dealing with and has to answer at this time is who should protect our doctrine? Who, who protects this and makes sure that it gets passed down to the next generation of the church. Well, we saw in 2 Timothy that Paul instructed Timothy to take the pattern of sound words, the things that he had heard from Paul, and to pass it on to other faithful men, uh, elder qualified men. But here's the problem in the third century. Some of these Gnostic teachers within the church that had arisen up and were beginning to teach these things uh, were trying to base their teaching in some form of authority. And so they began to tie their teachings, their writings, or even themselves to the apostles. And so you may have heard the term, the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas. There's actually about four 
Gospels, supposedly, that have, are attached to Thomas. Uh, so they began to attach some of their writings to the, the apostles to try and give them authority and weight in the church. And so what happens is during this time period is the church is responding to the Gnostics and, and the teachers who are teaching these things um, is that the elders in the church, particularly in the larger cities, uh, there began to be some who were uh, more outspoken. Maybe they were a little bit quicker on their feet. Maybe they were wealthy to the point where they were able to not be working some other job and they had more time available. Uh, they would rise up and begin to dispute with the Gnostics and the other heretical teachers. And so what happened was is the office of elder and bishop which the scripture uses interchangeably, began to separate in the third century. And so we began to see in the church elders and bishops as two separate offices. Uh, the bishops or overseers uh, being higher in authority than the, the elders were. And so the bishops began to take authority over uh, a city or a region uh, and multiple churches within that city or that region. And so the bishops began to be viewed as the ones who would guard the church's doctrine. They would be the ones who sort of were in charge of deciding what is in this category and how do we guard it. Uh, the bishops then began to emulate the Gnostic teachers. They began to go, let's establish our authority by um, publishing our connection to the apostles. Who did I learn the faith from and who did they learn it from and, and they learned it from one of the apostles. And so we began to see this idea of what is now in Roman Catholicism known as apostolic succession. Right? The bishops began to trace their lineage back to one of the apostles in order to prove their authority. This began to happen in the third century. Now, of course, the Roman Catholicism claims this apostolic succession for their line uh, to the Pope, right? The, the bishops in the larger cities, Rome, Alexandria, um, Jerusalem, they began to be, because they were in authority over a region and over a number of churches, they, they began to be viewed as spiritual fathers over these areas. And so they began to refer to each other as popes, Pope coming from the Latin and meaning father. Uh, so uh, the bishops of these large cities began to call each other popes. They began to be referred to as the pope of this region or the pope of that region. Of course, Roman Catholicism eventually said there's one pope in Rome and the others are lesser bishops. But that developed over the course of centuries, but it began here in the third century. Um, and of course, what happens when, when, when this happens, when the, the office of elder is, is split and now the bishops become this separate office who are now in charge of determining and defending this, they begin to be viewed uh, like the priests of the Old Testament or like the pagan priests in the Roman temples. And so the priesthood within the church is taken away from the people, the priesthood of the believer, and, and is centralized now in the office of bishop. And we begin to see the priesthood developing within the church. And then what happens when the bishops disagree with one another, right? We've been trying to determine these things here. When, when are you outside the faith? When can we have fellowship? Uh, well, when the bishops begin to disagree with one another, they begin to disfellowship one another. 
So even in the third century, we begin to see uh, the bishop in Rome or the bishop in Alexandria saying, we can't have fellowship with the believers in that region anymore because he and I disagree on certain things. Uh, and, and we begin, we see in some of the writings of that time period even that uh, people are referring back to previous generations of the church and going, well, wait a minute. Polycarp disagreed with these other people and yet they still got along and now you want to divide and separate over this very issue. Uh, and so there, there were arguments over uh, what do we do when we disagree on these issues. So when we come back next month and pick up the second half of the third century, we're going to see one of those issues that divided the church and that is particularly the issue of what happened, uh, what do we do with people who left the church or who um, denied the faith during a period of intense persecution. Now the persecution is over and they want to come back into the church. Do we accept them back into the church? And particularly, what if they were a church leader? Do we accept them back if they denied the faith during this time of persecution? There was big disagreement on that issue. So that's, that's the issue we'll look at when we finish the third century next month. But let's close this morning in a word of prayer.